Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. Welcome to the Optimal Neuro Spine Podcast. We are back after a little bit of time off in the month of February. We resume today with an interview with Dr. Mark Bilski to talk about the treatment of spinal metastasis, uh, cancer that's spread to the spine. Just in the way of introduction, Dr. Bilski currently is an attending neurosurgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Professor of Neurological Surgery at Will Medical College of Cornell University. He holds the William E. Sneed Endowed Chair for Neurosurgical Spine Oncology and is Chief of the Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering Multidisciplinary Spine Tumor Service. His clinical practice is focused on the surgical treatments of both metastatic and primary malignant and benign spine and spinal cord tumors. He developed the NOMS decision framework in order to provide a basis for the rational integration of new technologies and evidence-based medicine into the treatment of metastatic and primary spine tumors. And it remains the most popular decision framework for making decisions about treatment of uh, metastatic spine tumors. He has published more than 220 peer-reviewed articles and delivered over 400 lectures worldwide on the management of spine and skull-based malignancies. He has served on multiple editorial boards, including the Journal of Neurosurgery, Spine, Neurosurgery, and the Annals of Surgical Oncology. He's won numerous awards, including the Willett F. Whitmore Award for Clinical Excellence at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. It's really a privilege to talk to him about the current treatment of uh, spinal tumors, specifically metastatic tumors to the spine. Uh, Dr. Bilski, welcome. I should mention that I also did some training with Dr. Bilski back in 2003. So he's sort of like taught me everything I know about how to treat these tumors. Max, I think you knew an awful lot before you got here, but it was such a privilege. And thank you for the invitation to be on the podcast. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Let's start off by talking about your current practice. What is your clinical practice like? Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of evolved over the past 25 years. So when I got to Memorial, I principally actually did uh, brain and cranial-based malignancies. And that morphed about 15, 17 years ago. And now I do virtually 100% spine tumors, 70% of which are metastatic, 10% primary bone tumors, including chordomas and chondrosarcomas. And then about 20% intradural benign tumors, of uh, which about 5% are intramedullary. Mm-hmm. Do you do any research? Clinical research has been a huge part of our, really, our mandate here. I think we have evolved this multidisciplinary spine tumor program. And when that came together, now about 17 years, we really thought there were major holes in what we knew about spine oncology, both in the metastatic and primary tumor types. And so, most of what we've done over the past 17 years as a multidisciplinary group is really to 
try to advance the field in a really meaningful way for both patient care, patient outcomes, tumor control, reducing complications, and such. And so, yeah, that's been a really marvelous work in evolution for a long time now, but mostly with this uh, very large group that has evolved over these many years. Memorial Sloan Kettering has always ranked number one or number two cancer center in the country, if not the world. And so what you guys do there is sort of like sets the trend for the practice of spinal oncology treatments. Looking back, how did you decide to focus your practice on spinal oncology? So I would say that was purely serendipity. I was a month from finishing residency with a job that I'd had for a long time at Memorial. And the chair at the time asked me to find a spine fellowship with the intention of coming back and working with an orthopedic attending, Paul Rubri, who went away to Rochester to do a spine fellowship at the same time. And despite having done brain tumor research with Jerry Posner and having absolutely no interest in spine, in fact, I hated spine as a resident, I loved Memorial. And so I took that opportunity to go to the University of Louisville, your hometown now, that had a spot open and took me for the year at the Leatherman Spine Center with Chris Shields and and Steve Glassman from Ortho. I came back to MSK and Paul had stayed in Rochester. So I teamed up at the time with Patrick Bolin to do spines. But 90% of my practice, again, was brain tumors and cranial-based malignancies. And then eventually, by the grace of goodness, Phil Guten came as the new chief and wanted to consolidate the brain service, having hired two new faculty with really significant research interests in brain And he saw the need to build out a spine tumor program at that point. And that was around 2005, which really coincided with the development of spine radiosurgery. And so I was tasked with building out spine tumors from the neurosurgical side. Josh Yamada was tasked with building out spine, the newest radiation by Steve Libel, who was a chair at the time. He was actually a prostate radiation oncologist, and he had this huge experience in brachytherapy And they were really the first adopters of IMRT. So he was a really natural fit. And then ultimately, Eric Liss was a superb neuroradiologist who was also a car mechanic. And so he had this need to do more than just read films. And he became the interventional radiologist. And so it was the three of us that sort of coordinated together and then formed this really marvelous group, the Multidisciplinary Spine Tumor Service, which now numbers about 30 physicians as part of that effort at Memorial. I love that. Eh? Neuroideologist and a car mechanic. That's an interesting <laughs> combination. <laughs> He's also the best reader in the world, but he happens to be really talented. Yeah. So let's delve into a little bit in the uh, epidemiology. So what is the most common metastasis to the spine? What are the most common cancers that spread to the spine? Yeah, I think still to this day, for the unknown primaries that come into the emergency room, It's usually, at least in Memorial, it's going to be hematologic, either multimyeloma or lymphoma. The most common METs that we see as surgeons for surgery are non-small cell lung cancer, colon, renal cell, and melanoma. And then I think the most common bone lesions that don't need surgical treatment are really the hormone-driven tumors, breast and prostate, which often respond to, uh, you know, systemic anti-estrogen or androgen therapy. What is the current role of surgery in treating spinal metastases? Yeah, I think at this point, it really is pared down to the two major indications are really high-grade spinal cord compression with or without myelopathy from solid tumor, radio-resistant tumor histologies. And the second one is really instability, most of which can be treated with kyphovertivoplasty. But we're seeing a growing role for percutaneous pedicle screws particularly in patients with burst or compression fractures with posterior element disease 
who really need a posterior tension band in addition to kyphovertebroplasty at the index level. And that's basically what we operate on currently. Can you describe the evolution of the surgical techniques? It used to be everybody did laminectomies. How has that changed? Yeah, I think we went through that period of laminectomy and had really significantly bad outcomes. And there was a major shift towards radiation. And then really in the late 80s and 90s, as we got better instrumentation with pedicle screws, all of a sudden you could do much more aggressive resection of tumor and then stabilize the spine. So we didn't get these iatrogenic injuries from a pure laminectomy. And then it got very aggressive. All of a sudden we could do more aggressive posterolateral decompression and for a while, there was a huge movement towards anterior transcavitary resections of the vertebral body. And so a lot of people got 360 decompression fixation. In the mid-90s, there was really that WBB classification came along that showed people how to do these on-block resections. And it sort of made sense. I think we've, again, are starting to evolve away from on-block, even for primary tumors. But for metastatic tumors, most of those patients were really not great candidates for these very aggressive resections, either on block or intralesional gross total. Our original paper, I think around 2004, was really on a posterior lateral approach where we would come from the back and take a high-speed drill, draw off the lamina, draw off the pedicle and facet joint, and then you could come around the dura and take out tumor. And at that point, because we were using a lot of sublaminar hooks and even wires at that point, we really felt the need for a 360 reconstruction. And so from posterior, we put cement into that defect of the vertebral body and then do a posterior effusion. But we really stopped doing anterior transcavitary, you know, many years ago now. It's really been 15, 17 years. Once we got radiosurgery, where we started to get histology-independent responses, we really didn't see the need to do these gross total resections anymore, to do these really aggressive surgeries on patients with metastatic disease who were often impaired in so many other ways. They had so many other medical comorbidities or the extent of disease was so significant that they simply wouldn't tolerate those big operations. And that really evolved into what we do now on virtually every patient, which is what we call separation surgery, which is really a posterior lateral decompression with fixation but the intent of that surgery isn't to take out all the tumor to try to achieve tumor control, right? It's simply to create a better target for the stereotactic radiosurgery. Again, where we've gone in the post-operative setting from about 30% control with really aggressive surgery and conventional external beam radiation to our first paper, which was in 2014, showing sort of the separation surgery followed by radiosurgery, where we showed about 90, 95% control with high-dose radiation as a post-operative adjuvant with this really minimalist surgery. And we've now have three publications. One's published, one's in submission for renal cell colon and non-small cell lung cancer. And that number held up. We're about 94% local tumor control now with separation surgery followed by SBRT. And so what we've tried to do is pare down this surgery to something that's incredibly tolerable gets them out of neurologic trouble. We decompress the spinal cord. We stabilize across that segment. And then we get them to effective radiation for tumor control. And that's been a huge evolution. And really, given patients the ability to tolerate this, get back to a fully ambulatory status, and then get back to early systemic therapy after the radiation. That's really interesting because I think when I was with you in 2003, we were still reconstructing the anterior column, sometimes with metal metacrylate and all that. So with the separation surgery, you're not seeing 
you ha- you now have longer term data that you're not seeing failure of the instrumentation and that sort of thing. So one of the fallacies, I think, I think what we tried to get people to understand is that taking out more tumor wasn't going to give you better tumor control. It was just taking out more tumor. The biology of that tumor predicted the recurrence. And with radiosurgery, you need a two millimeter margin on the spinal cord to give an effective dose of radiation to the entire tumor volume. There was never really this intent to stop people from doing anterior reconstruction. And in fact, about 50% of the patients where we come around anteriorly and there's a big defect in the vertebral body or we take out a significant amount of the bone, we still do anterior reconstruction with methylmethacrylate. The difference in the strategy really is that we used to take out the disc and put pins in and then use that as a rebar to wrap the cement and then compress down with the posterior hardware. And I think with pedicle screw fixation, with that sort of three-column fixation, we've gotten less aggressive with needing to put pins in. And so if we have a defect, we basically just do an open vertebroplasty to reconstruct the anterior column. The other major change really is in the reconstruction on the pedicle screw side because we used to go minimum two above, two below the index level with pedicle screws. So if you had T7, we'd go T5 to T9 on the posterior fixation. And once we got fenestrated, PMMA augmented pedicle screws, we overcame the really bad problems that we have with tumor, which is one, osteoporosis. So we used to go long to distribute the load in multiple vertebral bodies. But when you put cement in, you overcome that issue. And the second thing that happens is often if they get adjacent, if they get progression, it's that adjacent segment. So if all of your hardware is one level above or below, there's a good chance you're going to lose fixation. And with cement augmentation there, if they progress to that adjacent level, they're still in cement and they hold fixation. So we looked at fixation failure rates with a long construct, which was really separation surgery, just two above, two below uh, at a minimum. We had about a 3% failure rate for the duration of their survival. It was a good construct in the cancer population. With the short segment fenestrated screws, where we're simply going one level above and below with PMMA augmented fenestrated screws, we're about 2% failure rate for the duration. So it just so happens that in this patient population, it's a very effective strategy. So one of the advantages of the separation surgery is a shorter surgery is less blast loss. So you've seen an increase in longevity and quality of life from separation surgery compared to the older ways. I think it's infinite. I think a lot of what we did was really, it was the right thing at the right time because we didn't have very good radiation. And so the sense was the more tumor you took out, the better chance you had of controlling it with conventional radiation. But those surgeries were often much longer, significant blood loss. In the old days, we used to be there so long and the patient would get potentially cold over the course of that. We would 20% of the time come up coagulopathic from both thrombocytopenia and and uh, factor deficiency, you know, with elevated INRs. And we don't see that anymore. You know, these are very short surgeries. I think the actual surgical time is usually about two, two and a half hours, and it's infinitely tolerable. Most patients could go home at three days, but part of this therapy is really getting them set up for the radiation. So we do really myelogram CT for simulation while they're in-house. They go home, typically get irradiated now within 12 days of the surgery, and then they're back on systemic within three weeks. 
You mentioned some of the advances include uh, fenestrated screws. Uh, what kind of screws are you putting in? Are they MRI compatible? Have you uh, migrated to some of the newer MRI compatible screws? Yeah, so we have routinely used titanium and it's been very reliable for us. We don't really have imaging issues. We have focal MR sequences that really do a good job at subtracting out uh, artifact from the hardware. In terms of radiation delivery, right, there's a 3% shielding from titanium with photon delivery. And so we've really never had an issue being able to contour beams and actually give that therapeutic dose, an ablative dose to the tumor with titanium hardware. We looked at cobalt chromium for a while. It's different and stronger. I'm not sure that our that our fixation failure rates were any different. Our rod breakage was any less. But there's a 9% shielding with cobalt chromium. They could not account for that in the dosimetry. And so we really have not used that to any significant degree. Peak screws have just come out. It really is the first and only instrumentation that was really developed specifically for tumors, which was really a a godsend in many ways. I think for us, at least initially, it was really most interesting for charged particle radiation. So proton beam and carbon ions. I think where we have come down on it now, you know, it, it is very expensive and significantly more expensive than titanium. So we're definitely not going to integrate it for every spine metastases. But where we do think it has a role for sure is in primary tumors where we typically now are going to proton beam, although we're now starting to look at hypofractionated protons instead of conventionally fractionated. So very short course radiation. But there, there's a huge advantage to peak And then patients who have failed radiation, SBRT, in the upfront setting, so they get it as definitive radiation and fail. If we go back to operate on them now, we're going to peak simply because we're much more vested now going to proton beam as a post-operative adjuvant after failed SBRT upfront. How do you evaluate spinal metastasis at your center? You know, as I mentioned, your center is the top center in in the country. When a patient calls or comes in, how do you evaluate them? Do you have a multidisciplinary clinic? Do you follow standard protocols? How do you risk stratify? I think we have developed this GNOMES framework, which you know well, that really came about in 2004. And we recognized very early that the standard scoring systems like Tamita and Takahashi, which have been used for decades to assess patient treatment, were really antiquated. And they didn't address most of the important issues that we were concerned about, like spinal cord compression. They couldn't incorporate biologics and checkpoint inhibitors into their survival models. And as you know, GNOMES assesses those four sentinel decision points that we use to make decisions, neurologic, oncologic, mechanical stability, and systemic disease. It has really allowed us to be cross-disciplinary because everybody in our institution who goes to look at a patient goes back to those four sentinel decision points. And while radiation oncologists are superb at knowing radiation sensitivity, what they don't know is mechanical instability. And you give them the ability that every time they go to see a patient, they also need to assess that instability. It may just be that they do a pain score. And if they have movement-related pain, axial load pain, that that patient is considered you know unstable and needs that assessment. And so I think when you have a multidisciplinary group, Using a framework like that really gets everybody on the same page very early. The thing about GNOMES is we've tried to keep it mostly as a decision framework with the ability to integrate new technology and evidence-based medicine over time. And so 
where it started, obviously, in 2004 is significantly different from where it is now. But we do constant updates with everybody in terms of those decisions that are being made at any moment in time. And obviously do a lot of publications in that regard as well to try to keep that gnomes fresh and updated. In terms of multidisciplinary, you know, I think we realized very early on that we couldn't go this alone, that in 2004, as we got radio surgery, what we knew prior to that was we weren't doing all that well. What we realized after that was we started to treat people with radio surgery, and they were patients like renal cell with no spinal cord compression. And then the institutional mandate was you didn't take those patients to surgery until they failed radiation. And very often at six months or a year, they would fail. Once we got SRS, stereotactic radio surgery, it was clear those patients weren't coming back anymore. And then there was this mandate to figure out why and how to incorporate that into our decision frameworks. And the second thing that came out around that time was really kyphoplasty and vertebroplasty. And we were very slow adopters of that because we thought most of these fractures settled over time and really didn't need treatment. And then we started to see that population that wasn't doing very well with, stent, with best medical management or conservative management. And so that program evolved. And we couldn't do that in a vacuum. You know, we had very different stakeholders, but everybody was treating the same patient. And so that's how we evolved really this multidisciplinary program, which started out with the three of us uh, in around 2007, and again, has morphed into a really significant enterprise across not only Memorial Hospital, but the entire network that we have. And that's really been a godsend for us. So the patient comes in, a new patient, do they see you and then you send them to XRT or do they see everybody on the same day? How does that work in practice? Yeah, so the revelation was that we needed to do multidisciplinary clinics that we, again, couldn't do this in a vacuum. And you didn't want somebody sent to me that ultimately needed radiation and not be able to get a radiation appointment for three weeks. It took us three years to convince the institution that we had to be in the same space at the same time. And it started out, again, with three of us in a closet. I mean, we really had the small space that they could possibly give us, but it worked. And so right now... We have a single triage number for the entire program because, again, you don't want a medical oncologist outside trying to make a decision about whether it's radiation or surgery. So we have our own physician referral service, and basically it comes into our office. We have the most talented, spectacular, basically nurse liaison for the entire program is Cynthia Correa, and she brings those patients in, does the legwork to figure out where they are, makes best guess with us to see whether it's radiation, interventional radiology, and then they get put into the multidisciplinary clinic with one of the three attendings or four attendings that are there on any given day. Once they're in that clinic, we can trade that patient around. We can decide best management. So if Josh Yamato looks at that patient and says, this is not a radiation appropriate, they need surgery, the patient sits in the same room and the surgeon comes in and has that discussion with them. So it's a very efficient way to manage patients to disposition them and then get them to treatment in a very short period of time. And now we have four full multidisciplinary clinics a week with minimum four services. So it's always interventional radiology, neurosurgery, and radiation oncology. And then we have physiatry in that clinic most days. And then we have pain management on two days a week. So it's really become a very effective strategy for managing this patient. But I think the biggest issue is 
if you create this program, do it with a single number. And then you have to garner trust in the institution that even though it's being sent to the surgical number, there's no vested interest in surgery. The only vested interest is best treatment, best outcome. Mm-hmm. So the advances in radio surgery made the separation surgery possible. There are a number of different radio surgery systems across the country. Which ones are you using in Sloan Kettering and how does the outcomes differ from other types like CyberKnife and other types of radio surgery? I think the the strength of most of the units is really intensity modulation with the ability to, you know, modulate the strength and the contour of every beam. And so I think CyberKnife was so brilliant. The problem is for big volume tumors, it's a very slow delivery with these nodal beams and there's a lot of hot spots. And I think it was a brilliant device. I think it's probably better for small volume tumors. IMRT was a huge advance. And then the next iteration of IMRT was really volumetric arc therapy, which almost gave people the ability to infinite number of beams to sort of focus on the tumor and gave the ability to dose paint really closely. And for us, at least, with standard IMRT, we were really good at contouring around the spine, creating concave shapes. So we could do use which meant we could treat 270 around the spine, but we had a very hard time doing circumferential plans around the entire dura, for instance. And now with with this volumetric arc therapy, they have much better dosimetry for circumferential plans. I think in the old days, we used a P32 plaque. So we had a dural plaque that could clear dural margins. And part of the way we used that is we had circumferential disease. Again, we, we didn't think we could treat that postoperatively. And so we would put the dural plaque on the back of the dura so that we could open up that plan and only treat, you know, 270 around the dura. So we had strategies around it, but the newer technologies are just more conformal and better contouring. Mm-hmm. And the volumetric arc, uh, which system do you have? Is it Varian or is it? The institution is pretty Varian-centric. So it, it's... Mm-hmm. One question about instability, and then we would talk rapid fire about a treatment of individual tumors. Does everybody get a, a fusion? Uh, how do you assess instability and when? how do you decide who should get screws? Instability without spinal cord compression, just in terms of somebody comes in with a fracture. I think is that, yeah, you know, SINS has been a very good guide to instability. So SINS was developed by, at that point, the Spine Oncology Study Group to define instability in cancer. And it was a very good process of taking experts and putting films up and saying stable or unstable. And the revelation early, I think all of us know that instability in spine tumors is very different from trauma and even degenerative. And some of that has to do with there's very little chance of shearing ligaments, et cetera. I think in essence, the other thing that we sort of see it as is, is if I irradiate that patient, will that pain get better or is this a fracture-related pain? And we often talk about biologic pain, which is sort of night or morning pain that gets better over the course of the day and really has to do with just active tumor. It has nothing to do with fracture. And what we think happens is that when you go to bed at night, your adrenal gland shuts down and these tumors are secreting inflammatory mediators all the time. And so when you go to bed and you're not making steroids, you get flare pain. When you get up and start moving, your adrenal gland kicks back in and you start making steroids and that pain gets better. And that's why exogenous steroids, that's why we give decadron for pain. That decadron and anti-inflammatories do not work for mechanical pain. So I think the biggest issue in SINs and probably under 
appreciated is really the degree of pain. And pain gets a three, which is is the maximum score of sins in every category with the exception of fracture subluxation. But realistically, what we're really talking about is pain because, and again, you know, in trauma, if you have an unstable fracture, you may get a neurologic injury. That's very unusual in cancer. And so we go by the pain first. If they have severe pain, VAS greater than seven and radiographic criteria, and we know it's mechanical in nature, the probability is at that point we're going to treat it. If there are zero to four with a significant fracture subluxation and they're sort of fixed in that position, you know, maybe you fought them over time or maybe they had severe pain and then it settled over time, zero to four, we're probably not going to treat it because zero to four is mild pain. And most people with treatment, kyphovertuboplasty or perk screws, you can get them down to a two, maybe a three, rarely a zero, but sometimes. But going from a four to a zero is not meaningful. Going from a seven to 10 to a two, three is really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Let's say, uh, run quickly, give me a one or two sentence update on molding management to the following tumors. Let's start with breast. Talking about for spine metastases. Yeah, breast metastases to spine. Yep. Yeah, I think the vast majority of those, you know, so many of them have mixed leg sclerotic disease. So, you rarely see instability in breast cancer. And I think most of them go, you know, if they're ERPR positive or HER2 new, they're going to go on a blocker. And most of those are well controlled until they really have advanced disease. So I think there's very little role for surgery typically. Uh, and most of them go on any hormone or hormonal therapy and they do really, really well if they're receptor positive. If they're receptor negative and HER2 negative, it's more complicated because we think there is some conveyance of radio resistance that is in that specific tumor. And we're trying to figure out why that is now. We've just sort of appreciated that some of those patients are failing. Okay, long. I think the great advances have been both biologics and checkpoint inhibitors from a systemic standpoint. So I think that our local control and lung, our visceral control is significantly better. What we know about biologic checkpoint inhibitors is that they don't treat bone disease very well with maybe one exception for renal cell, which is uh, cabozantinib. But fortunately, lung cancer, again, does not respond to conventional external beam radiation meaningfully. It is a superb responder to stereotactic radiosurgery. And so, you know, I think we've sort of solved the problem of how we get local control with, with lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And renal? Renal is really interesting. Again, you know, major changes in biologics, VEGF and mTOR inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors. It is a major responder as well to radiosurgery in ways that conventional external beam radiation does not treat it. I think the most interesting thing to come out of renal cell was actually a study from Cleveland Clinic that Jacob Miller was the primary author on. And for whatever reason, they continued patients on VEGF TKIs during radiosurgery, and their radiosurgery dose was 16 gray, which is actually relatively low for SRS. It's a meaningful dose, but it's a little bit lower than we use. Our dose has been typically 24 gray single fraction if we can get that dose in. And our local control rates at 24 gray single fraction without surgery, so we have a target and we treat, is 98% for your local control. At 16 gray alone, it's about 82% control, but with a VEGF TKI concomitant with 16 gray radiosurgery dose, they were upwards of 96%. I think it's the first time we've actually seen what could truly be considered a radiosensitizer, and I think that was a real event. Mm. GI colon. GI colon, not 
much to say. We think it's a very good responder to a high dose single fraction, and it may be again a tumor that has a little bit less responsiveness to hypofractionated. That eight to ten grade times three, it's still probably in the mid eighties, but not nearly as high as some of the other tumors. So it's interesting. We don't see a ton of it in the spine, but it's interesting. You know, I think it, it definitely there's something about lower dose that's just not as potent for giving local tumor control. Mm-hmm. Prostate. Prostate's really, really interesting. I would say for the first 15 years I was at Memorial, if we saw one patient progress with epidural disease, it was a lot. And then they got significantly better with androgen blockade. And all of a sudden, patients live significantly longer, and then they outlive the androgen blockade. And the minute they outlive that blockade, in the areas where they had sclerotic bone disease, they would blossom this massive epidural disease. And we had never seen it before, I would say 15 years ago. And now we see about 60 to 70 of them, 60 to 70 patients without a year. And it was purely the successful treatment locally allowed them to live longer and ultimately, you know, fail that androgen blockade. And then they developed this disease that we'd never seen. Fortunately, even with high-grade cord compression, you can treat those with conventional external beam radiation. So they can get 30 grain 10, even if they have high-grade compression and get pretty good tumor control, upwards of 80%. If they have high-grade cord compression from that and they're myelopathic, we take them to surgery because we don't think we can decompress them fast enough with conventional radiation alone. It will respond, but it won't involute you know, an apoptose in a meaningful t- time period. Mm-hmm. Final question for you. If you had a magic wand, what research questions would you answer and how would you optimize quality of spinal metastasis management? I think in terms of surgery, I think everything is getting more minimally invasive and more tolerable. So I think, you know, we've sort of more from major surgery, really significantly morbid surgery, front backs, on blocks, et cetera to separation surgery, to making the implant strategy shorter, to making those constructs shorter. And I think we're just now getting to the point where we're doing more tubular decompressions. We can do more MIS decompressions, and that may be, you know, the next iteration with maybe, you know, at the end of this, getting even to the point where we can do endoscopic resections, meaningful for tumor decompression. The one thing we have done, which I think has been meaningful, again, in terms of getting more minimally invasive, is using the Da Vinci robot, mostly for paraspinal tumors like schwannomas. And we have a pretty robust program now. The last two that we did, I did a retroperitoneal tumor with a colorectal surgeon in the lumbosacral plexus. And from the time of docking to out was 45 minutes. So I think it's a very effective strategy for patients, especially with schwannomatosis, who may have multiple resections. And then I think in terms of the other, what we're looking at from a more global standpoint are are really looking at the genomic and immunogenetic uh, landscape of bone tumors, trying to see, A, how to do things like radiosensitization, but also trying to see what conveys radio resistance to see if we can impact these tumors in a more compelling way. So I think that's kind of where we're going. Well, we want to thank Dr. Bilski for a very interesting and fascinating update on the treatment of uh, spinal metastases. And it's been a pleasure learning so much from my mentor. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website 
maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Spine Show.